This is Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Ajit Singh has had a vast variety of experiences in both digital pathology and radiology, both in operations where he was president and CEO at Bioimaging, a digital pathology company which was subsequently acquired by Roche, CEO of Digital Radiology and Medical Informatics at Siemens Healthcare, and Venture Capital, where he is a partner at Artemon Ventures, focusing on early-stage technology and life sciences investments. Dr. Singh also serves as adjunct professor at Stanford School of Medicine and is on the board of trustees for the AACR. He joins us today to talk about, among other things, similarities and differences between the two visually-based diagnostic specialties, pathology and radiology, challenges and opportunities as it applies to the global workforce shortage of pathologists, both in the developed and developing world, as well as practical applications of artificial intelligence in digital pathology and why the future might be here sooner than you think. This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by JAV Advisors. With over 16 years experience, JAV Advisors focuses on business and management consulting for digital pathology and artificial intelligence in deployment within histology, pathology, and cytology laboratories throughout the world. Call 213-258-6268 for more information. JAV Advisors. Ajit Singh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Joe, for having me on the podcast. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself. I think you seem uniquely poised to explore this area of digital pathology. You have a unique background, both on the operations side in various companies such as Siemens and Bioimaging and this new company, Ibex, that you're working with, both in you know what I would call the, the diagnostic specialties, the diagnostic image-based specialties, pathology and radiology. You're also on the venture capital side, so you get to see a lot of new, exciting, up-and-coming companies. So tell us, how did you get started in this business, and what what have you learned along the way that helped shape your unique perspective? Oh, um, Joe, that's a, that's a complex question. So I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll start sort of in the in the mid '80s when I finished grad school and and joined Siemens. My first job out of grad school was to be in the to work in the PACS business, the radiology, picture archiving, and communications business. In the early 90s or late 80s, early 90s, I was leading that business for the U.S. So that was my first introduction to digitization of uh, of radiology. And I led that group twice, once for the U.S. and once globally, about 10 years apart. And in those 10 years, a lot had changed. I mean, if I go back to the the mid-80s, early 90s, most places where we'd go talk about PACs or digital radiology, the reactions we would get was over my dead body, you'll take my film away. And by the mid 2005, 2006 timeframe, it was pretty much the standard of care uh, across the United States and, and soon thereafter, most of the world. And there are many places where there'll be malpractice today to, to not use uh, the digital mode for reading radiology images. If you go back to you know what the initial causes of resistance were, it all stemmed from the use cases not being right. I mean, if we portray PACS as something that would reduce the film cost, reduce the labor cost, reduce the file room cost, all of those were use cases that didn't have much value because they never actually turned out to be true. 
Whereas if you took use cases that had to do with clinical care, access to prior images, being able to compare old images with new images, those use cases were far more compelling. And that's what eventually led to the mass adoption of PACS or digital radiology. The journey in pathology started about 20 years later. As you mentioned, I led Bioimagin, which was a digital pathology company. This was from uh, 2008 to 2010. And, and then during my years in venture from 2010 onwards, we've invested in multiple companies which, which have had digital pathology as a way of existence, core diagnostics in, in India being one. And IBEX, uh, where I'm on the board, is using digital pathology for implementing AI in pathology. So it's been, it's been sort of a circuitous path majority of which was spent in radiology first 20 years and and the next 10 plus or 12 years or so in in pathology i see so i think it's natural to want to draw parallels between the two specialties of pathology and and radiology and i think it you know it's obvious we're both dealing with images and now the focus seems to be on digitizing these images radiology seems to be a little bit ahead of the game so to speak so Maybe tell us what you see as the obvious parallels between the two specialties, and then maybe some differences that we may not appreciate, and maybe help give a little insight as to maybe why pathology seems to be a little bit behind the times in terms of adopting a digital approach. Uh, sure, Joe. So there, is, there are sort of three underlying questions in what you ask. You know, first, first of all, what is similar between the radiology journey and the pathology journey? Second, what is inherently different? The inherent differences may come from the type of modality, and I'll I'll spend some time on that. Uh, and and a third area is where uh, th the third question you asked was why is pathology behind radiology, or why the journey started late? And, and there's a there's a related question that you haven't asked, but that's relevant in this context, which is is there a room for converging the two, or where will the two of them converge? Right. Mm. So, so let's first talk about the similarities uh, between radiology and pathology. So, number one, they both use images. Number two, they both use images for diagnostics. Number three, the type of benefits that came in radiology, if you if you went back 15, 20 years, are going to be very similar to the type of benefits that pathology is going to get. So, so let's talk about some of the benefits that radiology gave you know by going digital so for instance the productivity and specifically the productivity of radiologists went up some 20 odd percent the report turnaround time went down from something like three to four days to several hours the study availability went up from in the 50 60 percent range to about 100 percent range and by study availability means there was no such thing as a lost film which was a very common cause for study non-availability and then there was handling errors, a clinician viewing. So clinician would typically look at radiology reports, but almost never images in the past because accessing images was hard. Half the time you couldn't find the film. Uh, the clinician viewing has gone up. The comparison to prior studies has gone up by probably a factor of 10. I, I remember way back in the 80s, we were implementing PACS at University of Pittsburgh. And they asked us to, you know, sort of size the archive based on the then present rate of accessing old images, which is in the 5% range. And we did it. We set the archive size according to a potential retrieve rate of 5%. And within six months, everything came to a screeching halt. And the reason was now just because it was easy to access past images, the access rate went up to 100% or close to 100%. 
So our archive was by, was was small by a factor of 20 almost. So all those changes, both in the sort of the administrative as- aspects or operational aspects, as well as the clinical benefits happened. All of those would happen in pathology or are happening in pathology. The question is, what are the differences? There are There are three very stark differences. Number one, in radiology, many of the modalities were actually digital native. So for example, CT, the images came digital out of the machine. MR, the images came digital out of the MR machine. And it's it's so sort of backwards that in the days before PACS, there'll be digital images coming out of a CT, and then they'll be printed in analog on the film and be reviewed on film. So the question was, what was the point of going from digital form to film from before we could read it? So, so the fact that many of these modalities were digital helped in the relatively easier adoption of PACs in MR and CT. Whereas in pathology, the images are not digital native. The, the images are analog. I mean, they are, they're sitting on a slide and you can review them through a microscope or you can digitize them, but natively they are not digital. And the process of digitization, as as we know, is is still fairly cumbersome. It's time consuming. So that's difference number one. Difference number two is the size of pathology images. You know, as as big as radiology studies are, if you do a full body scan, it pales in comparison to, to the size of a typical pathology image or a pathology study, anywhere between a factor of 10 to a factor of 100. So while storage is cheap, is relatively inexpensive, transmission is still not able to keep pace with the size of pathology images. That's a second stark difference. And and the third is, as the display resolution, while it has improved quite a bit, the display resolution was good enough for radiology. And in many cases, it's still not good enough for pathology, right? So one can argue, no, well, that's an excuse. But actually, if if you did a very objective review, the resolution of many of the displays is still not at par with some of the use cases. Not all use cases, but some of the use cases in pathology. So those are some of the stark differences. As far as the clinical benefits are concerned, they'll be identical, almost identical to radiology. But as far as the adoption is concerned, there are some rate limiting factors which stem from the differences between pathology and radiology. Yeah, so I think it's a natural inclination, or at least I think some people you know, think it's an obvious conclusion, like you suggested, somewhat of a convergence of the two specialties. I mean, they're both diagnostic focused, they're both image focused to a large extent, you know, and then I think as we're looking for more or less invasive solutions, you know, liquid biopsy, of course, is one of the big trends in medicine, and then just finding ways to eliminate or reduce costly invasive procedures, you know, radiology is you know, certainly much less invasive than surgery and surgical pathology. So is it going to be a natural progression or evolution that the two specialties converge? And is it going to be a win-lose or will both pathology and radiology be able to work synergistically to come up with new methodologies and new ways of practicing? Right, right. So the short answer is that both these specialties are here to stay and probably there'll be additional ones. So if I could consider a super specialty, that is diagnostics medicine. I mean, we don't use that term, but there is diagnostic medicine. And and the role of a pathologist and a radiologist is one of a diagnostician. The question is, do they use the synergy emerging from the, the other specialty or do they not? 
today, if you see where this convergence takes place or where this integration takes place, it takes place in the in the head of the clinician. So if it's an oncology case, the the integration is happening in the head of the oncologist. So the question is, can you bring together radiology images, pathology images, the respective reports on a common platform? I mean, to start with, just make it visible literally next to each other, just juxtapose them. That's already a good start. But you can do, we can, today's technology can do more than that. We can utilize information from radiology and use it to highlight things in the pathology images. You can conversely use information from pathology and use it to highlight information in radiology images. And of course, we know at the end, it's morphology and molecules. I mean, neither of the two is good enough in and of itself to allow a definitive diagnostics, uh, diagnosis and, and prognosis. You, you do need two in conjunction. And so as long as in the future as I can see, morphology and molecules will coexist. And, and morphology from radiology images and molecular information from radiology images, such as PET and SPECT. Similarly, morphology from pathology images like immunostochemistry and histology, Asian images, as well as molecular information from, from pathology, which is namely fish, namely any PCR-based assays, of course, as you go more and more towards molecular imaging, the analysis of images, at least as of now, appears simpler. But over time, the, the, both of these complexities are pretty, pretty congruent. They are pretty similar to each other. I see. Yeah, I like that. I really like that. Morphology and molecules. It seems like molecules or molecular diagnostics has kind of taken the, the forefront or it's, you know, it seems to be the thing that oncologists most rely on in terms of making a treatment decision. And in this era of personalized medicine, where we have, you know, DNA uh, sequencing technologies have really taken off in the early 2000s. You know, we have a whole host of new molecular assays. Um, but now with the ability to digitize pathology images, there's got to be so much rich information locked in there, right? In terms of, you know, just the morphological features, things such as the size and shape of a nucleus, the number of cells, the ratio of you know tumor cells to stromal cells, just any number of things you could think of. And similarly in the radiology images. So do you think we're gonna, you know, kind of unlock that with you know with digitizing these images in terms of being able to offer more valuable information from the morphology to offer to the clinicians and patients? Uh, Joe, the short answer is yes. And then I'll kind of break it down as follows. You know, there is through, through the image analysis and AI techniques, you know, you know, uh, th this is a natural segue from your question. We'll we'll be able to bring the known knowns, the known unknowns, and then potentially the unknown unknowns. So let's go through them. Let's break it down and go through it one by one. So by the fact that the images are digitally available, the ability to actually analyze images just just for their feature, the kind of features that a radiologist or pathologist looks at, such as size of a structure, the distance between two structures, the basic shape of a structure, th those things are highly automatable tasks. And could we do them better than a radiologist or pathologist? Probably not. Could we do it more consistently than a radiologist and pathologist? Absolutely, yes. So the benefit in image analysis may not be from being able to do, do it better, it comes from being able to do it more consistently. So that's that's part one. Part two then is the, the known unknown, where we know a feature is visible. That's what, that's what the gestalt, if you will, a radiologist, a pathologist deploys to, to, to get something out of the image. Those features are 
essentially combinations of various primal features that we can detect from the images. That's the known unknown. And then there is the unknown unknown. There is inherently a lot of information locked in these images that we as radiologists and pathologists have not been trained to look at. That's not been a part of our curriculum. So if I say, for example, information in the stromal cells, that's not something that has been a part of our curriculum for a long time. It's now recently becoming more, more vogue, but it has not been a part of our system. Similarly, there are, there are features in other spaces, so to say, other multidimensional spaces, which are not visible to the human eye, but they exist. So if I draw the analog, for instance, from aerial reconnaissance or climate data or geothermal data, there's a lot of information there that's not visible to the, the naked eye, to the human eye, even when looked through a, a, a more a, a modality like a telescope or a microscope. The question is, can you, can you infer or derive those features? And I think that's where AI and these modern analytical take techniques will make a lot of difference. Yeah, you've given us a lot to, to think about there. I like the nod to Donald Rumsfeld with the uh, known knowns and the unknown unknowns. Because I think, you know, as you suggested, let's be clear, you know, pathologists have been doing this for the last hundred years or so. And that's what, you know, we've really excelled at is, at, is identifying these morphological features, you know, but it may be beyond the ability of the human brain to do it consistently and do it across the whole slide and then several slides and that we can certainly get some some help in that area you know not to detract from the the capabilities of the human mind but certainly we can achieve more consistency and more high throughput with the use of automation and as you suggested artificial intelligence so that, i think that's a a good segue so let's you know cuz i think AI, applications of AI seems to be a very hot topic today. So just kind of so we're all on the same page, could we just start off with just a very loose working definition of AI? Just to be clear, we're all talking about the same thing. And maybe just, you know, what are some examples of AI that we use in everyday life that we not even may not even consider? Right, right, right. So it's a great question, Joe. And, and you know, each time I have tried to define AI, I have gotten into trouble with at least one person in the audience. <laughs> right. It's such a diverse field. It is. It brings together mathematics, statistics, prediction theories, psychology, neuroscience, philosophy. I mean, there's just so much to it that no, no matter which way you define it, somebody in the audience always thinks, but that's not AI or that's not intelligence. But th that, that caveat or that qualifier having been said, AI essentially is an effort to mimic the workings of a human mind, net-net. Now, can we do it well? The answer is in some applications, very well, and in some applications, miserably badly. Broadly speaking, AI techniques over the last 60-odd years have evolved into two pathways. One is called symbolic approach. The other is called connectionist approach. So symbolic approach, you represent the concepts that you're trying to reason about using symbols, and then you have a whole bunch of if-then-else type of rules that help you do problem solving. So early chess algorithm used to do that, early applications of AI in selecting the right antibiotics in the 1960s and 70s already use the symbolic approach. Over the last 30 years, the, the alternative, which is the connectionist approach, which means using neural networks and the connections between these neural nodes to reason about the data you are looking at has obviously caught, in, has caught uh, more steam. And, and the, the, the more recent applications more often than not rely on that approach. If, if you carry a, a smartphone, which most of us do, and when you see an ad being served, 
let's say today yesterday i was talking about a new kind of wallet that can prevent my rfid being read and literally a minute later i was served an ad from a company i think called ridge that had a new kind of wallet that kind of wallet so we are observing ai in our daily life almost every single hour there is some application of ai staring at us now you know is it a very dystopian view of the world where the answer is depends on how you take it there's always possibility of abuse but ai is helping us in in many ways some very simple like an ad being served or if you if you drive a car that has any kind of self driving features built into it there's plenty of ai there and and there are applications in retail banking and so on and so forth This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by DJT Solutions, your single source for all your digital pathology requirements, from consultation services to system requirements, including installation, training, and life cycle support. Since 1995, DJT Solutions, we are your best choice for your best results. So what do we have to show for it now in uh, pathology and radiology? We've heard so much about, you know, that AI is going to help us and take us into the, the next era, deliver us to the promised land. So what do we actually have now in terms of practical applications? So, Joe, I should first talk, talk about what we don't have now and what we even shouldn't try to have now or any time in the near future. Because that, by process of elimination, answer the question of what do we have now much easier. First and foremost, any effort to state that a AI system will beat the performance of an expert is wrong, is, is mathematically incorrect. It will not happen today. It will not happen in the future. And setting those expectations will have two problems. Number one, it will fail. So that's going to create a lot of angst anyway. And second, any insinuation that a system will beat the expert is not going to go, it might go over reasonably okay with the chess player, but it will not go over well with the doctor. That's not going to happen. So I think, and since we know it's not going to be true anyway, why go down that path? Problem number one. Problem number two, those problems which inherently have extremely high dimensionality. So when we talk about big data, it doesn't mean lots of data. Big data means lots of dimensions, lots of free variables. So that's that's a common confusion. So when you take a problem that has a large number of free variables, that problem is going to be very difficult to solve. So if I think of, let's say, breast cancer, the number of free variables is more than 20, probably close to 40. Most humans can process maximum three, four, five, six variables in their head. 20 is a lot. And to try to solve a 20-dimensional problem, yeah, can it be solved? Yes. But the number of images required to learn that would be a very, very large number that's not going to be feasible anytime soon. So now let's come from there. Let's derive what's possible today. So number one, if you use a problem with inherently low dimensionality, yeah, such as, let's say, diagnosis of pneumonia through chest x-rays, looking at fractures or screening images for fractures before an expert can look at it, those are realistic applications today. So the smaller the dimensionality of the problem or the smaller the number of free variables, the more solvable the problem is. And it's being solved today in, in good measure. I'll give you some examples in a second. Uh, the second thing is, rather than saying beating the expert, if we say let's bring the knowledge of expert to the non-expert, bring the knowledge of the expert to the lesser expert, 
bring the knowledge of the expert to someone who's trying to learn. That's a much more realistic application. Third, rather than solving the, the problem of quality or beating the expert, if we try to solve the, the problem of access, that's a much more realistic application. Whether we look at parts of rural, rural United States or whether we look at parts of India or Brazil or China, the alternative today is to do nothing, right? So I'd rather be 40 points better or 90 points better than do nothing or being 45 points better than tossing a coin than being five points or eight points worse than the expert. Like, what am I being compared to? I mean, that, that famous statement, don't compare me to almighty God, compare me to the alternative. So if I if you look at those applications, they are much more realistic. And they are, some of them are in vogue today. So if you look at companies like Ibex, where I serve on the board, or companies like Page and Path AI, there are many companies that are actually deploying AI in practice today. So Ibex, for instance, has a first read application for prostate cancer. Uh, th those are very realistic applications today. Now, are they being clinically deployed in mass? The answer is no, because there's obviously early adopters will come first and there'll be some resistance, but eventually it becomes standard of care. Yeah, I think kind of what I'm learning or coming to realize is that a key component of AI or one of the key benefits is kind of this idea of democratization, as you suggested, or making the expertise available both to the practitioners, you know, not everyone is going to be the world's expert in, say, breast cancer or prostate cancer, but there are, you know, generalist practitioners and pathologists. So kind of developing tools to triage and make, you know, an expertise of some sense, so to speak, available to generalists, I think is one benefit. And then certainly, you know, making uh, services available you know, across the world, certainly in rural United States and underserved areas across the world seems to be a very practical application. So what do you see as kind of the highest and best uses uh, for the implementation of AI? So so that's a great question. And I'll give you two examples. I'll give you one example from, from India and one example from the United States. So in India, I served as an advisor until very recently to the board of trustees of the Tata Group, which is, as you know, the largest conglomerate in India, one of the largest conglomerates in India, and, and but it is the largest philanthropy in India and, and kind of ranks in the top 10 or 15 across the world. And the Tata Group announced a program three years ago to build a hundred cancer centers across the country in the tier two or three cities. So building the brick and mortar, equipping it with technology, that was not the challenge. There was definitely money available to solve that problem. But we saw early on our biggest challenge will not be capital. Our biggest challenge would be talent. Two reasons. Number one, where do you hire all these people? I mean, if they don't exist, you can't hire them. Second, even if they exist, to motivate them to move to second or third tier cities is difficult because other infrastructure like children's education and safety and so on, they don't exist. So, so the model we developed was plan centrally, deliver locally, right? So if you, if you take a command center in Mumbai or Delhi, it was possible to hire top class US board certified radiologists, pathologists, and even have an expert panel sitting in the US and Germany who are available on a locum basis to, to review a case for second opinion, for example, and, and deliver locally by de-skilling the task. So you can de-skill many of the delivery tasks to the level of a nurse, or you don't need, for example, a radiation oncologist 
physically on ground to deliver all radiation. I mean, you do need in some cases. So things like reading radiology images, reading pathology images, doing treatment planning was done centrally and the delivery is being done locally. It's already working today in one of the states of India and Assam. And, and some of these tasks are being aided by AI systems, very, prim very primitive, very simple. But the idea is to bring the knowledge of the expert to non-expert. That's application number one. If I, if I then move from there to the United States, uh, th there are numerous applications which are simply pathologist assist. So even though there is capability of doing first read, I think starting there would be would be a wrong start because it's going to create resistance. And then the reimbursement models don't exist and, and the regulatory models will have to evolve. So, But if you look at the pathologist assist or for that matter, a radiologist assist, those applications are, are catching traction. Yeah, now these are certainly very practical applications. And I think it's, you know, on the ground, it's kind of hard to separate the technology from the practical considerations. And as you alluded to, labor shortages and talent shortages, so to speak, in terms of pathology workforce, seems to be a very large theme. And just so, first of all, what's your opinion of that or your assessment? I really don't know what to believe. You know, is there, we've been hearing for 30 years, there's a looming shortage of pathologists in the United States. I simply haven't seen it yet, but I certainly believe it in other parts of the world, particularly Europe and Asia. So first, what's what's your opinion about that? And, and is the digitization of images and AI really gonna help alleviate this strain? Absolutely, Joe. So both things you said are absolutely correct. Number one, the practical consideration on the ground are extremely important. That's what I said very early on, solving the right use cases. You know, starting with the wrong use case can get you into a lot of trouble as it happened in PACS for radiology and as it happened in, in pathology and as it happened, for example, in use of AI in pathology. The early attempts on Watson, for example, at MD Anderson backfired in a big way, not because the technology was bad, but because the choice of use case was very complex. So the 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 use cases, the choice of use case, the practicality of the ground is extremely important. And 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 second, this whole issue of shortage of pathologists or for that matter, radiologists. So let me let me let me address the second question first, and then I come to the first one. So let's talk about the shortage globally and then in the United States. So globally, there are about 30,000 anatomical pathologists. About 15 or 17,000 of them are in the United States for a population of 300 million people, 300 plus million people. For a population of 1.3 odd billion people in India, take a guess how many pathologists are in India? Anatomical mm. pathologists. The no. number is 1,000. Wow. Okay. So is there shortage of pathologists? Absolutely, yes. It's obvious. Right? Now let's talk about the United States. Is there shortage of pathologists at an aggregate level? The answer is probably no. But is there shortage of pathologists in how they are distributed? Absolutely, yes. So is there ample number of pathologists available in, say, San Francisco or Dallas or New York or Chicago, Cleveland, Rochester, Minnesota? Absolutely, yes. But if I go to Sioux City, Iowa, or if I go to Little Rock, Arkansas, do I have similar numbers and in the requisite number of subspecialties in pathology? The answer is absolutely not. So even if the aggregate numbers are right, the distribution and the subspecialties, those numbers are not right. So now imagine being able to virtualize this whole universe, which means I, the, the image and the pathologist do not need to be at the same place at the same time. Right? Let's disintermediate that. Let's first dissociate the two and then disintermediate then the pathologist could be where the pathologist needs to be or the radiologist needs to be, 
and the images where the image is close to where the patient was or is. That opens up a whole array of possibilities of being able to utilize the talent where it exists and not the talent where it where the patient is or where the image is. Now, Dr. Ajit Singh, thank you so much for coming on. I think there's just a few, two more things I want to touch on before we wrap up here. You've certainly give us a, given us a lot to think about in regards to AI applications and digital pathology. So first is the regulatory component, which you kind of alluded to before, uh, you know, and the definition of AI being somewhat slippery, maybe for lack of a better word, or hard to you know, put into words, but I believe there's some component to it that it is a system that is continuously evolving and it's mimicking to some extent human intelligence. So, you know, my question is, how do you regulate such a thing, right? right. If regulation is somewhat of a static thing, how do you regulate or even begin to regulate something that's continuously evolving? Right, right, right. So, Joe, you know, it is, while it's true that regulation sometimes lags technology, but I've never seen regulation to be irrational. Regulation can be slow, but it's not irrational. It eventually catches up the technology. Now, if the pace of technology is so fast, if you look at the last one year and the last five years and the last 10 years, the, the range of developments have been more than the last five years, 10 years, and 50 years, respectively, when you compare, compare these two sort of two triads, if you will. For, for regulation to keep pace with that excessive a pace or that extensive a pace is difficult. Now, to complicate matters further, AI for the longest time has been a black box. And black boxes don't go over well with regulatory bodies because if you cannot explain what's going inside, it's hard. So as AI systems have, have evolved to being sort of self-explanatory, which means they're able to explain their behavior as to you know algorithmically how they reached a conclusion, that has become more and more acceptable to bodies like FDA and, and those getting giving the CE mark in Europe and, and, and so on. So I, I do believe regulation will catch on. It's never irrational. It always ends up working out. And, and so the answer lies in picking initially applications where regulation is going to be less onerous, which means if you make it an assistant to the pathologist, assistant to the radiologist, as opposed to a temporary replacement or a partial replacement, those use cases will go over well. So it, it comes down to how do you di dissect the problem so that you, you allow enough time for regulation to evolve while you still solve some problems on the ground. Well, that's certainly encouraging. And then let's talk about something you also alluded to was this dystopian future, because I think there's sort of an ominous component to this all. <laughs> And or maybe, and then let's also touch on the utopian future. But you know, certainly with AI, there's often a fear-based component to it. You know, such as there's the regulatory aspects, like we can't trust this black box. But then, in terms of actual practitioners, there's a fear that you know AI is going to replace me. People are going to be replaced by robots. My job's going to be eliminated. And then often there's a glib response to, well, okay maybe it's some aspects of your job will be eliminated, but then you can then go on to focus on more lofty tasks. So is that, you know, are these realistic concerns and is that a realistic response to those concerns? So Joe, my, I'm an eternal optimist and I do believe in things working out because they have a, they have a way of working out. But I'll, I'll first quote my, my former mentor and dear colleague, Professor Sam Gambier at Stanford, who Unfortunately, is not not amongst us anymore uh, as of as of a couple of months ago, and he made a statement about a decade ago 
Uh, so he was he clearly was prescient there. And he said, look, it's not that AI will replace radiologists, but radiologists using AI will replace radiologists not using AI. Ah. Okay? So that, that was a very profound statement. So will it will AI give a competitive advantage, a knowledge advantage, a wisdom advantage to radiologists and pathologists and other diagnosticians? The answer is absolutely yes. It will never replace. There's, there's no history of knowledge worker being replaced by a system. Knowledge worker simply elevates to doing more knowledgeable tasks or tasks that require deeper knowledge. Well, I think that that certainly that certainly is encouraging that we will human beings will remain useful into the into the future. Our guest has been Ajit Singh of Artem Ventures. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.